So we've come all this way. Something like three years of public ministry, moving from place to place, teaching and preaching and healing and controversy, parables and prayers and crowds and homesickness. For this life, Jesus' followers left everything behind, families, friends, livelihoods, everything. And for what? The entry into Jerusalem was grand, the crowds and songs and waving palm branches. But that didn't last long. A day or two, a week. And then the same old story. The powers that be put their boot on his neck. His own disciples betray him. The soldiers seize him and take him away. No angels come to his rescue. He didn't even resist the so-called miracle worker. He just let them overpower him. And look where that got him. They mocked him, and they tortured him, and they killed him like a common thief, strung him up on a barren hillside, one more cross among the thousands, a disgraceful way to die. And for what? I know, I know, I've, I've heard the stories of resurrection, but even if they're true, what good did it do? What did it change? The Romans are still in charge. I mean, he came back from the dead, right? That's what they say. But he only showed himself to his followers. You know? Why, why not show himself to the crowds? Let them see his wounds, his risen body. Why not go back to the temple? Show himself there. Or to the governor's palace. Show himself to Pilate. Get some more palm branches. Have another parade. But no, he shows himself to a few followers who no one will believe anyway. And then he leaves again. What good is that? How does that change anything? I mean, look around. It's just business as usual, as far as I can tell. There's no need for more palm branches, that's for sure, or Easter trumpets or Easter lilies for that matter. And it's the same today in the 21st century. Some of the players have changed, of course, and some of the numbers, but the world's still full of violence and betrayal and disappointment. A pandemic sweeps around the world, snuffing out lives like so many candles. Injustice, inequality, racism, sexual assault, mass shootings, loneliness, isolation. I mean, do I really have to go on? Really? Trumpets? Alleluia? Christ is risen? So what? What difference does it make? This is part seven of our seven-part series on understanding Easter. And I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. Well, here's some skepticism for you. I know the Bible is a library, and I've got a library card. So let's go check out a book. Here's one. 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 21 to be exact, a lovely little story about how vengeance makes the world go round. The story goes like this. There's a famine in the land, a three-year famine, and King David, good old King David, asks God what needs to happen to end the famine. And God says that Saul, the previous king before David, had done a terrible thing, killing many Gibeonites, trying to wipe them out in a genocide. And until David made amends for that, 
the famine would continue. So David goes to the Gibeonites and says, what do I need to do to make things right? And the Gibeonites say, give us seven of Saul's sons so we can kill them. And so David does just that. Now Saul had several widows, and David takes two sons from Rizpah, a former concubine of Saul, essentially a woman of low rank among his many wives. The implication is that she's basically at the bottom of the hierarchy. And David also takes five grandsons from Saul's daughter, Merab, and hands all seven over to the Gibeonites, who summarily impale them up on a barren hillside, another disgraceful way to die, left there for the animals, the vultures and the jackals, to scavenge. I mean, there you have it, a portrait of the world, hungry and violent and running on vengeance. And at the same time, asleep, really, numb to it all, just marching along with bloody stakes and crosses on the hillsides and plenty of guilt to go around. Saul is at fault, and the Gibeonites are at fault, and David's at fault. The only one in the story who acts with dignity and humanity is Rizpah. Have you heard that story? She she goes to that hillside to be with them, those dead boys. Who knows how old they were? They might have been young men, but to her, to Rizpah, they were her babies. Two of them, she gave birth to them, she nursed them, and she raised them. And the other five, the sons of Merab, they weren't so different. And so Rizpah adopts them, even in death, as her own. She sets up camp on the hillside there and defends the bodies day and night from the scavengers, the wild beasts. For six months, she lives there, from the fall harvest to the spring rains all for the sake of the honor, the dignity of those broken bodies, caught up in the cycles of vengeance and the guilt of kings. And when King David heard about what she was doing, he was ashamed. Her courage and humanity woke him up, shamed him into gathering the remains of the sons of Saul and giving them a proper burial. And only then, the story goes, only after Rizpah's fierce and loving work of dignity and honor did the famine in the land come to an end. Rizpah's tenacity reminds me of the Exodus story, which we tend to think of as all about Moses, but it's the women who get things started. It's Moses' mother and Pharaoh's daughter who save the infant Moses from Pharaoh's brutal decree to kill every newborn boy among the enslaved Hebrews. And even before that, it's the midwives, Shifra and Pua, who disobey and subvert the Pharaoh's order in the first place, letting the newborn boys live, including Moses. Come to think of it, in so many of these stories, it's the women who are always there at the outset, getting things going, setting out in a new direction, a new beginning, putting things in motion. Shifra and Pua and Moses' mother and Pharaoh's daughter and Rizpah up on the hillside scattering the vultures. 
the tenacious, resourceful defenders of life and of the dignity of the human body in life and in death. In the Gospels, too, it's the same old story. Virtually all the male disciples scatter in fear and a few courageous women stick around. Look at Peter. Three cheers for Peter. He talks a good game. But when push comes to shove, he denies he even knows Jesus, never mind defending him or caring for him. No, the male disciples betray and desert. And it's the women who look on from a distance, as Mark tells it, or near the cross, as John tells it. And it's the women who come to Jesus' tomb. In Mark, it's Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, who come with spices to anoint Jesus' body. In John, though, it's different. Mary Magdalene comes alone, with no spices in tow. Jesus has already been wrapped in linens and aloes, so she must be there for a different reason. Does she come, like Rizpah, as a heartbroken, fierce protector? Is she concerned that Jesus' body, already disgraced in mockery and torture and crucifixion, will be degraded even further, even stolen? Or is she driven instead by sheer grief, by a desire just to be close to his body? She comes before dawn in the dark. The tomb is located in a garden, but it may as well be a barren hillside with predators lurking in the shadows. Or is she more like Moses' mother or the midwife, Shifra? Shifra means beautiful, by the way, with their insistence that there must be a way for life to flourish, even if they can't see it yet. A hope against hope. Mary Magdalene's been with Jesus all this time, after all. She's heard him say in his last public teaching just a few days ago, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Is she there that night because she wonders if this could somehow be true? That death isn't the final chapter of the story? We don't know. All John tells us is that she's there alone in the dark. Though, in the bigger picture, she's not alone. Rispa's there, too. And Shifra, and Pua, and Moses' mother, and Pharaoh's daughter, and all the rest, named and unnamed, the women who tenaciously defend and protect and care for human bodies in life and in death who refuse to allow the cycles of violence and vengeance all around them to prevail, who stay close by, who show up in the dark, who build a basket out of papyrus and put the baby in it to outsmart Pharaoh and his minions. You know what the word is in that story, the Hebrew word that we translate as basket, it's used only here in all of Hebrew scripture, only in this story and in one other story. The word is teba, which here we translate as basket. But in that other story, the story of Noah and Naamah, 
we translate as ark. Moses' mother, in other words, builds an ark out of papyrus and lays her baby in it, a vessel, a sanctuary for life itself, for the dignity and honor of the human body. And she does so because she refuses to accept the idea that the God of her ancestors, the God of peace and grace, the God of the rainbow covenant, the God who has put away the warrior's bow in the clouds, that this God of life has somehow changed and been replaced by Pharaoh, by the rule of war, by the cycles of violence and vengeance. No, she says, I'll build an ark. I'll set something new in motion. I don't know exactly what will happen next, but I know that this cannot stand. This reign of terror, this abuse of power, this cannot win. And so I'll build an ark. An ark up on a barren hillside, a campsite, a refuge, or an ark down in the river valley, an ark made of papyrus. I'll bear witness. I'll stay close, near the cross, or looking on from a distance. I'll go to the tomb before dawn. I might not even know why myself. Maybe I'm hopeful, maybe I'm grieving, maybe I'm afraid, maybe I'm all three at once. But I'll be there. And when I find the tomb empty, and I fear the worst, and I see the gardener, and I tell him they've taken him away and I don't know where they've laid him, and he just looks at me, calm, and familiar as though nothing has changed at all, as though everything will be all right, and then calls me by name, I understand. Right there, in the garden, on the first day of the week. That day, that Easter Sunday, it's not about whether everything has changed. No, Easter is a declaration that nothing has changed. Deep down, I mean, that God is still with us and for us, that the rainbow covenant of peace and salvation still holds, that the long-promised day, the great jubilee, is now beginning to dawn that despite how things might look and feel, despite the losses, despite the claim that the covenant is broken or that God has abandoned us or that the whole thing is a lie, despite Pharaoh's claim and Pilate's claim and Herod's claim and the Gibeonites' claim and Caesar's claim, the Roman Empire's claim, that everything has changed, that the days of Noah and Naamah are long gone, and all that matters now is power and violence and vengeance. No, it's not true. Nothing has changed. God's promises and God's covenant remain. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And just as God freed the enslaved Israelites yesterday, God will free all people from our enslavements tomorrow. And that new exodus, that great jubilee, begins today.
begins, not ends, begins. All four Gospels explicitly set the story of Easter in close connection with the Passover festival, a clear sign that we should understand the story as somehow inaugurating a new exodus. In the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus is cast as a Passover lamb. John the baptizer calls him the Lamb of God, and he's crucified on the very day that the Passover lamb is sacrificed. And the blood of the lamb, remember, protects the Israelites from the tenth plague, the one that provokes Pharaoh to release them from bondage. But there again, the death of the lamb isn't the end of the Exodus story. It's the beginning of their journey out of Egypt. Up ahead, remember, is the escape, the chase, the parting of the waters, the wilderness wandering, the manna from heaven, the people's complaints, the mountain of God, and the gift of the law, but also the idolatry of the golden calf, and the decades of journeying, lost, trying to find the promised land. The Passover lamb is just the beginning of the journey. Easter is not an end. It isn't the end of the 40 days of Lent. It's the beginning of the 50 days of Eastertide. For the mysteries of new life and liberation can only begin on the single day of Easter Sunday. So let the trumpets sound, but not in triumphal satisfaction as though the journey is over. Rather, sound the trumpets as an announcement of the dawn, not because the journey is done, but because it's just begun. Better yet, sound the trumpets as a kind of reveille, the morning bugle call meant to wake us up, to rouse us from our slumber, keep us awake and alert so we may never become numb to the cycles of violence and vengeance around us and within us, so that we may never fall for the lie that God's covenantal promises have been broken or overcome or forgotten or corrupted. No. The message is not that Easter changes everything. The message is that despite appearances, the ways of violence and vengeance, contempt and desecration have changed nothing about God and nothing about who we truly are as children of God. That God's promises and God's covenant are sure and steadfast. That God's love and justice will have the final word. That even in the midst of great difficulty and struggle, the midst of betrayal and desertion, mockery, torture, and death, the God of life and love prevails. And for that reason, because we have been awakened or reawakened to this deepest truth about reality, that love prevails over hate, mercy over vengeance, dignity over contempt, life over death. For that very reason, we can rest assured and we can act assured. We can commence and continue the journey out of enslavement into freedom, up onto the hillsides full of stakes and crosses, and we can walk and stand with confidence and tenacity in the face of scavengers and kings, pharaohs and emperors, 
mockery and hate. And we can say with Rizpah and Shifra and Pua and with Moses' mother and Pharaoh's daughter and with Mary and Salome and Mary Magdalene and with Jesus, with all of them, we can say, no, no, we will not play your game of death. No matter how ubiquitous, no matter how invincible it may seem, no. Instead, we will build an ark. Instead, we will set something new in motion. It's no accident that Easter is tied to the dawn, the beginning of the day, a time still filled with shadows. It's no accident that Easter is tied to Sunday, the beginning of the week. It's no accident that Easter is tied to Passover, the beginning of that great journey into freedom. It's no accident that Easter is tied to spring, the beginning, only the beginning, but the beginning of the season of new life. Easter stands at the outset, the first ray of light, the first step toward freedom, the first snowdrop or crocus of spring. Easter doesn't change everything, but the journey that begins on Easter will. The trumpets sound then, not looking back in smug complacency, but looking forward as a reveille, a call to wake us up, to rouse us for the morning, and to send us out with confidence and tenacity into the dawning newborn day. Strange New World is a SALT Project production written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton and Gretchen Summers. Music is by Pablo J. Garman and Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And feel free to drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and see you next time.